This is Jay from Potstirer Podcast. Recently, there have been a number of major news stories that have gripped the nation, particularly those related to abortion rights and gun violence. I recently posted a blog article on PotstirerPodcast.com, reposted to Medium, related to an aspect of the leaked draft version of the pending opinion of the court in the U.S. Supreme Court case Dobbs v. Jackson. It's definitely worth the read. But the case itself, and what it means for our bodily autonomy, our civil rights, and liberties in the future, will be discussed in an upcoming episode. So you don't want to miss that. As for gun violence, this is a subject covered in a few episodes in the past, but we're now dealing with the aftermath of yet another rash of deadly mass shootings including the white supremacist terror attack in Buffalo, New York, and the mass shooting of an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Those who lost their lives in these violent, senseless acts, and the families and friends mourning those who were killed, my heart truly goes out to them. My prayers go out to them. But that is not enough. That is not enough. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. We need to do more. We're again confronted by the fact that gun violence and what leads to it has still not been addressed in a real way here in the United States. And as long as both major parties continue to give lip service to mass shootings and other forms of gun violence, oh, this is bad, we're gonna do something about it, we're gonna stop the violence, and then forget about it at the end of the 24-hour news cycle, the people we love, as well as ourselves, will continue to be in danger. More danger than we should ever accept as a society. New episodes of Hot Star Podcast are in the works, and in the next few weeks, episodes will be released on these issues and more. While these episodes are in process, check out this bonus episode of Hot Star Podcast. This was originally released as a Patreon bonus episode in November 2018. It's about the hashtag MeToo movement and how that movement has led to many of us rethinking events of the past. An example of that is former President Bill Clinton in his 1998 impeachment. Was his affair with then-White House intern Monica Lewinsky, which was what led to Clinton's impeachment, simply a private matter that should never have been released to the public in the first place? Or should Clinton's lie to a grand jury during an open investigation had been enough for his removal from office as a president whose transgressions made him morally unfit for his position? Or perhaps there could be another way to look at this historical event that might lead us to look at the president who ushered in the third way movement within the Democratic Party in a different light. Check out this bonus episode of Pastor Podcast. Enjoy. Content warning. This episode contains content referring to explicit sexuality, sexual assault and harassment, violence, and suicide. In the wake of hashtag MeToo, 
hashtag church to impurity culture, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and American societies wrestling with rape culture, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and other inappropriate conduct from powerful figures in just about all areas of American society. I've been thinking a lot about this, and I felt it would really fit a bonus episode. I've been thinking about President Bill Clinton, and what I'm specifically going to focus on in this episode is the Monica Lewinsky scandal and his impeachment, although his history with women generally is worth taking a look at. Where does Clinton fit in today's culture, this zeitgeist? While he is no longer in office, he is still a visible figure who in recent years has had several public speaking engagements, has acted as a statesman at events such as legendary singer Aretha Franklin's funeral, and has acted as a surrogate for Democratic political candidates. As of this recording, we also have midterms coming up and a presidential election in only two more years. And so I think Clinton's legacy, particularly when it comes to this, is something worth thinking about, something worth mulling over, something really worth our second look. It also matters because as unfair and arguably sexist as it may be, Bill Clinton's reputation and legacy has long been intertwined with that of his wife, former first lady, former secretary of state, and 2016 Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Rodham Clinton. So this month's Patreon bonus episode is about President Bill Clinton and re-examining the Monica Lewinsky scandal and his impeachment with 20 years of hindsight. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. To really give this topic justice, it's important to understand the background of the Lewinsky scandal. And for that, we have to go back in time to the early 1990s. In March of 1992, when Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton was running for president, the New York Times published an expose about a failed land deal that the Clintons had invested in back in the late 1970s called Whitewater and accusations of improper loans made to their business partner, Jim McDougal, that helped Bill Clinton's 1984 gubernatorial campaign, among other things. This mismanagement led to the collapse of the Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan in 1989, which cost the federal government $73 million, which is almost $150 million in today's money. When Bill Clinton was elected president, and he started his first term in 1993, Questions about the failed Whitewater deal were continuously asked of both the president and the first lady. In July of 1993, Deputy White House counsel Vince Foster was found dead in a local park. He was found with a gunshot wound to the head. Soon after his death, documents were removed from his office, some having to do with Whitewater. These would later turn up at the Clinton's residence. In 1994, the U.S. Justice Department opened an investigation. They were looking into Whitewater, particularly to determine if the Clintons engaged in illegal transactions. These allegations included that Bill Clinton pressured Arkansas businessman David Hale for a loan that would help both himself and Madison guarantee, and that a local bank concealed potentially improper transactions in 1990 during Clinton's re-election bid for Arkansas governor. 
The same investigation was also looking closer into Vince Foster's death, which was considered suspicious. Attorney General Janet Reno initially appointed Robert Fisk as special prosecutor overseeing the investigation. In June of 1994, Fisk released preliminary findings, which were that the Clintons engaged in no wrongdoing and that Foster died by suicide. On the same day these findings were released, Clinton signed the Independent Counsel Reauthorization Act of 1994, which eliminated the special prosecutor position and replaced it with an independent counsel, which is chosen by a three-judge panel of the Special Division, a division of the D.C. Circuit. Two months after the act was signed into law, Fisk was replaced by Kenneth Starr in the new independent counsel role. The concern was that having Fisk continue the investigation would create a conflict of interest since he was appointed by Clinton's attorney general. So the investigation continued on the Clintons for the next several years. Ever since Bill Clinton stepped into the national spotlight, he had been dogged by allegations that he had engaged in extramarital affairs and had sexually harassed and even assaulted women who he came across while working in his official capacity in his various elected positions he has held. Now, back in these days, these types of allegations, if made public, could sink campaigns. For example, in 1988, U.S. Senator Gary Hart was the frontrunner for the Democratic presidential nomination until it came out in the media that he was having an extramarital affair. This revelation saw his poll numbers plummet, and he withdrew from the race. So Clinton had reason to be concerned about this. During the 1992 race, Jennifer Flowers, a state government worker and former reporter, had come forward claiming she and Clinton had had a 12-year-long affair, which at the time Clinton denied. But unlike what happened to Gary Hart, Bill Clinton's campaign wasn't derailed by the allegations. After he went on to win in 1992 over President George H.W. Bush and he began his first term in office, sex scandals followed him. In 1994, Paula Jones came forward stating that in 1991, while Clinton was still governor of Arkansas, he propositioned her and exposed himself to her at a Little Rock hotel. Jones then filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against him. The suit dragged on for years. The first few years of the suit wound through the courts, who had to decide if a sitting president could be sued, as Clinton's lawyers argued against him being sued as he was still in office. In 1996, Clinton was running for re-election. He had enough baggage, but despite Whitewater, Jennifer Flowers, and the Paula Jones civil suit, Clinton won in a three-way election between himself, Republican Senator Bob Dole, and Reform candidate H. Ross Perot with a plurality but not a majority of the vote. But regardless of the percentages, he got enough votes to get his second term. This second term, though, was about to get rocky pretty fast. In May of 1997, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Clinton could be sued and the Jones civil suit could move forward. After this decision, the lawyers began deposing witnesses, including the president himself, Jones's lawyers wanted to establish a pattern of behavior by Bill Clinton, in particular, sexual misconduct that would lend credence to Jones's sexual harassment account, hence the interviews with Clinton himself, as well as a number of other witnesses. So Clinton's deposition included him being asked about his sexual conduct with several women, 
Jennifer Flowers came up, and Clinton admitted at the time to an affair with her. He was also asked about a number of other women, too, one of whom was Monica Lewinsky. Monica Lewinsky was a 22-year-old woman from Southern California who was a recent graduate of Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. She came from a well-off family, and her family connections got her an unpaid summer internship at the White House in 1995. A few months later, this turned into a paid position in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs. Around this time, she met President Clinton and began an affair with him, which included nine encounters between November 1995 and March of 1997. In April 1996, her immediate supervisors moved her job over to the Pentagon because they felt she was spending too much time with President Clinton. Around this time, Lewinsky confided in a co-worker at the Pentagon, Linda Tripp, about the affair with Clinton. Tripp had been interested in writing an insider memoir focused on the White House ever since Vince Foster's death. Tripp decided to secretly tape her conversations with Lewinsky for a book she was writing without Lewinsky's knowledge, which was illegal in their jurisdiction. Lewinsky recounted to Tripp the affair and her romantic feelings for Clinton, and even showed her a blue dress that had a stain from Clinton's semen. Lewinsky was planning to have it dry cleaned, but upon Tripp's suggestion, Lewinsky kept the dress and did not have it washed. Clinton ended the sexual relationship with Lewinsky in March of 1997, though he did agree to help her find employment in the private sector. Lewinsky left her job at the Pentagon in December of 1997. The lawyers for Paula Jones had been looking into several women, one of whom was Juanita Broderick, a woman who claimed Clinton raped her in 1978. But at this point in time, she wasn't ready to talk, so she wasn't part of the Jones suit. Jones's lawyers were also alerted to Linda Tripp, who was said to have known about two women, Lewinsky and Kathleen Woolley, a White House aide who accused President Clinton of sexual assault in an alleged 1993 incident. And the lawyers wanted to ask Clinton about these women. So when Clinton sat down for his deposition in the Jones case in 1998, he was asked about many of these women he had been rumored to have either assaulted, harassed, or engaged in consensual affairs with. In particular, he denied the sexual assault on Willie, and when it came to Lewinsky, he denied having an affair with her. And that denial would fast-track a series of events so that by the end of the year, his very presidency was in jeopardy. Independent counsel Kenneth Starr was looking for a break. In late 1997, he came to the same conclusion as his predecessor Robert Fisk that Vince Foster died by suicide. Now, in early 1998, the Whitewater investigation was in front of a grand jury, but the case was falling apart. Starr began to broaden the investigation and look into other ways that the Clintons may have been engaging in illegal wrongdoing, because it became pretty clear it wasn't going to happen with Whitewater. Meanwhile, Linda Tripp, who was Monica Lewinsky's confidant and claimed to have witnessed Kathleen Willey after her alleged sexual assault, had been subpoenaed by lawyers for Paula Jones and she was facing the fact that she would be called to testify in the Jones suit. If she lied and said she knew nothing of the Lewinsky affair, she could be charged with perjury. If she told the truth, it would be revealed that she taped Lewinsky without her knowledge, which was illegal in her home state of Maryland, and this could lead to her losing her job, and even worse, being prosecuted for illegal wiretapping. Linda Tripp did not want to go to jail. 
so she decided to do something else instead. She paid a visit to Ken Starr and told him what she knew. In exchange for her information, her tapes, and her testimony, she would receive immunity from prosecution. This information, plus finding out that Clinton testified under oath that he did not have sexual relations with Lewinsky, led Starr and his investigators to look deeper into Clinton's testimony and see if, in fact, he lied under oath. Starr received authorization from the Attorney General to officially expand the existing investigation to include the Lewinsky affair and Clinton's testimony in the Jones suit. The Lewinsky affair began to be reported on in national media outlets at this point, and on January 26, 1998, Clinton made this public announcement with his wife Hillary standing by his side. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. And the next day, Starr opened the grand jury inquiry into the Lewinsky affair. Over the next few months, Tripp, Lewinsky, and Clinton would testify in front of the grand jury. Clinton's testimony included this infamous gem. Counsel is fully aware that Ms. Lewinsky has filed, has an affidavit which they were in possession of, saying that there is absolutely no sex of any kind, any manner, shape, or form with President Clinton. Uh, that statement is made by your attorney in front of Judge Susan Wright, correct? That's correct. Your, that statement is a completely false statement. Whether or not Mr. Bennett knew of your relationship with Ms. Lewinsky, the statement that there was no sex of any kind in any manner, shape or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. If the if he if is means is and never has been, that is not a that's one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. The blue dress that Lewinsky kept at Tripp's behest was tested for DNA evidence, and it was confirmed that the stain on the dress was indeed President Clinton's semen. On August 17th, after testifying in front of the grand jury, Clinton gave a televised speech alone. Good evening. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the grand jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I'm speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part 
for which I am solely and completely responsible. But I told the grand jury today, and I say to you now, that at no time did I ask anyone to lie, to hide or destroy evidence, or to take any other unlawful action. I know that my public comments and my silence about this matter gave a false impression. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. In the United States, a president can be forced out of office before the end of his or her term through a constitutional process referred to as impeachment and removal. According to the U.S. Constitution, the president can be forced out of office for what is termed high crimes and misdemeanors. Impeachment is essentially charging the president with a crime or some form of misconduct. This stage of the process is executed by the House of Representatives. The second stage of the process is handled through the Senate, where the president is tried and the Senate votes whether or not the president should be removed. In order for a sitting president to be removed from office, at least two-thirds of the Senate must vote for removal. A sitting president has never been removed from office through this process. But up until this time, only one president, Andrew Johnson, had been impeached. This was in 1868. Richard Nixon was headed towards impeachment in 1974, but resigned before the impeachment vote could take place. In September of 1998, Ken Starr delivered 36 boxes of evidence to the House Judiciary Committee and outlined 11 possible grounds for impeachment, and Congress released the Starr Report. The next month, the House authorized the committee to conduct a broad impeachment inquiry. At this time, the midterm elections were coming up. The Republicans were in control of both houses of Congress and were trying to capitalize on Clinton's troubles by running on integrity and morality in the Oval Office. In the midterms, the Democrats gained five House seats, and the Senate remained unchanged at 55 Republicans to 45 Democrats. The Republicans still retained overall control of Congress. According to the exit polls, close to two-thirds of voters at the time did not want Clinton impeached. Right after the midterms, Clinton settled the Jones civil suit for $850,000 to end the lawsuit without admitting wrongdoing. In December of 1998, the House Judiciary Committee approved four articles of impeachment, including two perjury counts, a count of obstruction of justice, and a count of abuse of power. On December 19th, the full House voted for two of the articles of impeachment. One of the perjury charges passed 228 to 206, and the obstruction charge passed 221 to 212. Clinton had been impeached. He was charged with perjury for lying in his grand jury testimony and obstruction of justice by covering up his affair with Lewinsky. Merry Christmas, Mr. President. In January of 1999, the Senate began the removal process. The Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, presided over the trial. Thirteen House Republicans served as what were essentially prosecutors, while Clinton had a team of White House counsel lawyers defending him. The trial was over on February 8th, and on February 12th, the Senate voted. They needed a two-thirds vote to convict and remove the president. On perjury, the Senate voted 45 for removal and 55 against, while they were split 50-50 on obstruction. 
The vote was mostly along party lines, but a few Republicans voted against removal. Clinton's job was safe. But the situation made it difficult for many of the main players involved. For Monica Lewinsky, she has struggled for the last 20 years to shape the legacy of being President Clinton's other woman and being blamed for Clinton having been in danger of losing his job and his marriage. Linda Tripp was later fired from her job anyway, which she blamed on a vendetta by the Clintons. Most of the women who had accused Bill Clinton of sexual abuse or harassment, such as Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Woolley, and Paula Jones, ended up in mostly private life, other than being called up by Donald Trump for the 2016 campaign to get into Hillary Clinton's head. As for Bill Clinton, he was able to finish out his term, but the impeachment scandal was used by the Republicans to encourage the electorate to vote for Texas Governor George W. Bush in 2000. Moral values, integrity in the Oval Office. That was one of the big reasons some voters voted for George W. Bush. This was where the mainstreaming of the term values voters began. Clinton presided over an excellent economy with low unemployment, and he's often remembered fondly for that. The sex scandals, including Lewinsky, but also the sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations, these scandals were, for a long time, framed in deeply partisan terms by Democrats as well as Republicans. But in 2018, the hashtag MeToo movement has made this read of Bill Clinton in his scandalous past a bit less palatable to a lot of folks. When President Clinton was impeached in 1998, I had just started my senior year in high school, and I spent much of my time hanging out with friends, focusing on getting into the colleges I wanted to get into, and finishing well enough in school not to screw it all up. I hadn't been in a relationship yet. That came later in the school year. While I wasn't exactly popular with the boys, I had experienced a couple of instances of what would probably be called sexual harassment today, but it was 20 years ago and I didn't know what to call it really then, just guys hitting on me or being a little too touchy-feely. And while I was interested in politics even then and had an idea of what was happening to the president, I was too young to vote and I barely had any life experience. I knew that Clinton lied under oath and lied to a grand jury which is why he was being impeached, but I didn't understand why he would be asked about his personal life anyway. I knew adultery was bad, but at the time, I thought it was a personal matter that he shouldn't have been asked about in the first place. He didn't want to mess up his marriage, so of course he would lie about it. I also didn't buy the Republican cries for moral values in the Oval Office, because I knew even then that past presidents had committed immoral acts, and immorality wasn't just about sex. Presidents had ordered invasions of other countries, called for assassinations and coups, and often had blood on their hands, and sex with a willing participant, even if not your spouse, didn't seem to be the hugest deal in the grand scheme of things. But time is a funny thing. Life changes you, and sometimes it changes your perspective. Over time, I began to view the Clinton impeachment a bit differently. I still think that the impeachment and the rhetoric behind it was very much political. Many of these same leaders who pined for moral values out of their presidents in 1998 give their president a mulligan in 2018 for a more overt, 
blatant and unrepentant acts of sexual impropriety, the call for morality wasn't designed for Republicans to protect any individuals or ideals or institutions, just themselves. But I think it's also time to recognize that what Clinton did was wrong, and it wasn't exactly personal. Clinton was not accused of having sex with a random woman he met off the street, or a woman in a social circle. This was a workplace relationship in a government space, so definitely not private. He had sex with someone who worked for him in that space. Monica Lewinsky was an intern in the White House who essentially answered to him, not directly, but he was the top guy. And while the gig didn't earn her a paycheck at first, having worked as a White House intern looks awesome on your resume. So those who receive that rare opportunity aren't going to want to screw that up. What I always come back to is this. What if she said no? Lewinsky has stated in the past that she was attracted to him and she chose to engage in the affair with him. But consent doesn't mean full agency. Full agency means that you're just as free to say no as you are to say yes, regardless of what your own desires might be. It bothers me when I think about the fact that throughout the scandal, Lewinsky wasn't really protected. She was being raked through the coals as simply this other woman who gave Clinton sexual pleasure and helped the president cheat on the first lady. Even Congress focused on her as an asset to torpedo Clinton and not as someone who was, in a sense, taken advantage of by the president. There's a reason why abuse of power didn't make it through the House. And I would maintain that Lewinsky had more to lose than Clinton. Yes, Clinton could have lost his job. He could have lost the presidency. But Clinton had already made it to the mountaintop, even with scandal. He still was later on able to get speaking engagements. He continues to be a popular figure, and he's considered a statesman. In the popular consciousness, Lewinsky is defined solely by her relationship with Clinton. She had a difficult time moving on from the scandal successfully and had trouble over the years finding and keeping jobs in her field and staying employed because of the scandal. This essentially altered her life and not in a good way. Even Lewinsky herself more recently has said she is beginning to come to terms with the idea that even though she has maintained over the years that she consented to the affair, she may not have had agency and Clinton abused his power. She gave an interview for Vanity Fair earlier this year where she said just that. One of the things she said was this, quote, For two decades, I have been working on myself, my trauma, and my healing. And naturally, I have grappled with the rest of the world's interpretations and Bill Clinton's reinterpretations of what happened. But in truth, I have done this at arm's length. There have been so many barriers to this place of self-reckoning. The reason this is difficult is that I've lived for such a long time in the house of gaslight, clinging to my experiences as they unfolded in my 20s and railing against the untruths that painted me as an unstable stalker and servicer-in-chief, an inability to deviate from the internal script of what I actually experienced left little room for reevaluation. I cleaved to what I knew. 
so often I have struggled with my own sense of agency versus victimhood. In 1998, we were living in times in which women's sexuality was a marker of their agency, owning desire. And yet, I felt that if I saw myself as in any way a victim, it would open the door to choruses of, see, you did merely service him, end quote. Some might say that Lewinsky is looking for a little more time in the limelight and using the hashtag MeToo movement in a way it wasn't intended. Hillary Clinton recently conducted an interview essentially stating that Lewinsky was an adult and her husband didn't abuse his power. But I'm not so sure about that. While I've never dealt with the situation as public and life-altering as the scandal Lewinsky found herself in back in the late 90s, I get the experience of engaging in unhealthy relationships, problematic encounters, and so on, that so many years later, I look back and see the big picture, the fuller meaning and the ramifications, which can be pretty troubling and problematic in hindsight. Regardless of Lewinsky's motives for giving the interview, I believe her second thoughts and reflections on the affair and the scandal are genuine. Even though Lewinsky may have wanted to pursue the relationship at that time, Clinton used his power to more easily get what he wanted because under those circumstances, it puts the target in a potentially awkward and unfair conundrum. It's a lot like professor-student relationships in colleges and universities. If a professor is teaching a student or is in charge of the student's curriculum in some way, it is unethical for them to engage in a romantic or sexual relationship with that student. Even if the student is attracted to the professor and would jump at the opportunity to engage in a sexual encounter or relationship, the professor, by virtue of being in a position of influence and power over the student and is in a position to impact the student's future, engaging in those types of relations would be ethically wrong. A person of power who does not set up proper boundaries opens themselves up to potential charges of harassment and impropriety as well. Remember that Clinton had been accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault throughout his career, including by Juanita Broderick, Paula Jones, Kathleen Woolley, and others. Again, the fact that Monica Lewinsky happened to be a willing participant is of little consequence when your pattern of behavior includes exerting undue influence over those who are in your employ. And it seems like at every turn, he wasn't really held accountable for that. Sure, he almost lost his job, but it wasn't for the affairs or the alleged assaults or harassment. It was for lying to the wrong people. It seems as if, if he hadn't lied to attorneys about what he had done with Lewinsky, any sexual misconduct or abuse of power wouldn't have made a difference. And I guess that's what doesn't sit well with me. In the era of hashtag me too, in the public coming to terms with sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual misconduct perpetrated by those in power, there is a growing divide among Democrats, liberals, progressives over how we view Bill Clinton. Clinton does have a complex past. And if we look back at his past with today's framework, it's fair to say that there's some issues here. The way I look at it, I don't think we're served well by protecting or hand-waving those in power, even when they're in our own camp. This isn't expecting more out of Democrats than out of Republicans or cannibalizing our own or playing their game. 
The game from GOP politicians is not moral values. It's accepting duplicity and cognitive dissonance as normal. And it's not new to the Trump era. It's just more naked, more transparent now. It's important for the rest of us. No matter where we are ideologically, we need to stand for something. Standing for our values and our ideals. We need to stand for something rather than someone. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed this, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Prime, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see links to the podcast on a nearly endless list of podcast apps. I'm sure you'll find one that fits you. Subscribing means you'll get to listen to new episodes once they come out. No waiting, no delay. Once it's posted, you'll have it. Also, check out the Medium blog I mentioned in the intro. Links to that and more is at my link in bio, potstirpodcast.com slash link in bio. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go on your app of choice and leave five stars or whatever the highest rating is and leave a review. It just increases visibility so that others will be able to enjoy this too. And I love to tweet quite a bit. So follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.